Stopping Scotland Scammers podcast is a Broadstance Media production brought to you by the Royal Bank of Scotland. I'm Jackie Brambles, and this is episode one. If you've seen Stopping Scotland Scammers on television and are thinking this might just be the same thing all over again, minus the pictures, of course, stick around. The podcast isn't a repeat of the TV programme, but it is inspired by it. We'll be looking at the stories through a different lens, exploring the emotional impact. I was devastated. I was I was thinking how stupid I was. It was just this awfulest feeling in my stomach that you had, and it, it just wouldn't go away. Delving into the psychology of who gets scammed and why. You're not special. <laughs> it happens to all of us. It's It's fine. You know, you're not particularly, you're not more dumb, you're not more stupid, you're not a bigger sucker than anybody else. And possibly going off at a few tangents or wherever our curiosity happens to take us. I thought zombies were like walking slowly with like a limp and, you know, looking yeah, at Yeah, with, with their arms sticking out. No way, these, these were like, this is like facing 30 Usain Bolts. If I asked you to guess what the biggest scam ever in UK history was, you might understandably assume it was a cybercrime. Maybe some kind of uber-sophisticated hack into a financial institution, swiping millions of pounds in a matter of moments carried out by shadowy figures of an international organised crime ring. It sounds about right. And it probably would have happened earlier this year or last year. After all, the cybercrime figures are rising. 55% year on year. So yeah, uh, a recent multinational cybercrime, perfectly reasonable guess. But actually, the truth is way more unbelievable and much closer to home. This spectacular scam took place 173 years before Echo Bay, or eBay as it was later rebranded, ever made its first online sale. So the year was 1822, and about 30 miles north of Glasgow, a man by the name of Gregor McGregor of Loch Catrin began an extraordinary con that netted him the equivalent of what would be £3.1 billion in today's economy. Now, just to put that into context, last year's total cybercrime figure was £1.1 billion. That's the sum total for all the cybercrimes in the UK. So the tale of Gregor McGregor raking in nearly three times as much cash with one scam, eight years before the telephone had been invented, let alone the internet, is a story well worth telling. But it's a long one, so I'll just give you the highlights and then we'll get back to the present day. Returning from military service overseas, McGregor claimed that a king in South America had been so impressed with his swashbuckling heroics, he'd gifted him a small neighbouring country, just for him. It was near the Bay of Honduras, and this country was called Poyas. McGregor depicted Poyas 
as an undeveloped promised land. It was rich in natural resources with a beautiful mild climate, rich fertile soils, and he said rivers literally running with chunks of gold. Now this was happening at a time when emigrating to America was very popular, but it meant an arduous sea voyage with absolutely no guarantee of what lay beyond that. So eager investors, many of them from Scotland, sunk their life savings into bonds for a stake in Poyas. Not only that, but many of them paid for a one-way ticket on one of seven ships that McGregor packed with wide-eyed adventurers looking to settle and prosper in a new country. There was just one tiny problem. That country didn't exist. Poyas was entirely fictional. McGregor had made the whole thing up. It was a spectacular scam that netted him a fortune, but was catastrophic for his victims. McGregor had pulled off the prototype of what would become, nearly 200 years later, the most prolific scam online, knowingly and blatantly selling something that doesn't exist over and over again. Sound familiar? How could we have been fooled like that? Like an idiot, I paid the other thousand pounds. And I thought, you fool. How could you let this happen to you? I'll fill you in on what happened next to McGregor and his ships bound for a fake country a little later on in the podcast. But for now, let's hop into our time machine and back to the present day to take a look at the biggest ever cybercrime in Scottish history. A word of advice. If ever you have cause to be on the telly and you'd like to be filmed in a flattering light... The smell and sound of bacon rolls being prepared is nectar to a ravenous and appreciative camera crew. Well, that's exactly what greeted us at Keith's lovely B&B in Fife. Jovial, friendly and very welcoming. Keith was hit hard when he was scammed out of £10,000 by an organised crime gang who made £113 million using telephone number spoofing software to make it appear as though their victims were genuinely being called by their bank. I got this phone call from this lady claiming that she belongs to my bank. Keith was told that his bank account was being drained by fraudulent activity and that in order to make it stop, it was necessary to shut down his old account and open a new one. They just needed a few details. But Keith wasn't convinced. I was wanting to say, well, how do I know you are who you say you are? Like many people over the last couple of years... Keith has heard about bank scams and is now sceptical of all cold calls. But the scammers, realising that the public are becoming wise to their wicked ways, have had to up the ante and find ways of reassuring their victims that they're in safe hands, so they can allay suspicions and progress the con. And that's when she says, well, on your debit card, the back of your debit card, there's a, I think it's an 08 number. I'll go and speak to a fraud section mm-hmm. uh, about these transactions and uh, I'll get my colleague to phone you on that number, on your mobile. So we were there, that went, and sure enough, the number that was on the back of my card came up on my mobile. 
So you're thinking it's real. It's real. It's real. It's yep. them. Yeah. I'm, yep. I'm, I'm sucked in there. Well, who wouldn't be? Time for a second cuppa with Keith and a minute of righteous indignation on his behalf. For goodness sake, the caller ID on your mobile phone identifies an incoming call as being from the very number that's on the back of your bank card. Does that mean that we literally cannot believe our own eyes anymore and should always assume the worst at all times? Hey, Jackie. Hi there. Sorry about that. No worries. I know just the man to ask. And after a few technical hitches, ironically, I have a long and fascinating conversation with Dr. David Moditz, a specialist in online deception and the psychology of persuasion in internet fraud. He's a research associate in the computer lab at Cambridge University, so safe to assume, brain the size of a planet. But he did confess that when it comes to his soul, it can be an uphill struggle to retain his faith in humanity. He reckons it could be down to the company he keeps. So, you know, I've, I've been now at the computer lab here uh, in Cambridge for, this is my fourth or fifth year, I think. Right. And um, so, I, 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 you know, I work in a corridor um, with the security group here. And, you know, basically, you know, most of these people are fairly paranoid. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they're, I mean, honestly, I mean, the way they would see it is not, it's not paranoia if it's true. Right. So well, what well they're exposed to so much yeah. more of the bad stuff. Yes. So, so I, I've noticed that, you know, I'm getting similar. I mean, this kind of leads us to a bigger question, right? So, um, you know, how much does it cost if you immediately start assuming that everybody is a crook? I mean, is this a world that one would love to live in? I mean, for me, you know, it's an important question. So I would rather assume that people are nice and honest and then, you know, my, I might get scammed sometimes, but the quality of my life is much better that way than so, me being so totally the, paranoid constantly. Yeah. So there's a fine line between being cautious and protecting yourself and taking certain measures and then kind of sliding into becoming cynical, mistrusting and paranoid. Yeah. So essentially, um, you know, as, as cruel or cold as this sounds, um, you, you should consider the you know cost-benefit equation. So, is it just the price of doing business in a sense? So, would I be rather you know trusting and sometimes pay for it, or do I want to be constantly on the edge? I mean, that's a it's a moral question. It depends on you know what people want. I'm not saying one is better than the other. I know what I've chosen. Yeah, but I'm pretty sure that the 240 people who sailed for two months across the ocean from Britain to South America in 1823 to stake a claim in a land that wasn't there would, in retrospect, wish that they'd been a tad more cautious. It wasn't just their savings and their homeland that British history's biggest scammer, Gregor McGregor, robbed them of. He didn't blink as he packed them off to an uninhabitable jungle where three quarters of them died within months from disease and malnutrition. McGregor did end up in prison after trying the same con out on the French, who were not impressed. But he was out within two months and ended up fleeing to Venezuela. His 21st century counterpart, the ringleader of the £100 million scam that counted Keith amongst its victims, was not so lucky. He was caught last year 
and is serving an 11-year sentence. Though that's not much comfort for Keith, who'd lost the money he worked so hard for to save up for his daughter's wedding. The financial hit was hard enough to take, but the emotional toll, he told me, was much worse. I was devastated. I was, I was thinking how stupid I was. It was just this awfulness feeling in my stomach that you had, and it, it just wouldn't go away. For days, I was waking up in the morning. I've never had that feeling before, and I never want it again. Oh, I felt so bad for Keith, but you know, he's not unusual. In my experience over the last three series of making Stopping Scotland Scammers, I've learned that scams have a unique scar that they leave on their victims. It can only be described as a kind of misplaced, inappropriate sense of shame. I've yet to meet one person who fell foul of a professional fraudster who didn't tell me how stupid they were, what an idiot they'd been, what a fool. I can't believe I fell for that. To listen to it, honestly, it's heartbreaking. If these people had been mugged on the street or assaulted in their own homes, they wouldn't give themselves such a hard time. And nor would they be vulnerable to what Dr. Moditz describes as secondary victimisation. More on that in the weeks to come. In fact, lots more, actually, because over the course of the next few podcasts, we'll be delving deep into the emotional and psychological aspects of being scammed. Dr. Moritz has done extensive research on the financial versus the emotional impact of being duped. So we asked them, you know, considering how much you own, how much money you make, you know, in a particular month, um, how strong was the financial impact? So we needed to do to relativize this because, you know, if people are very rich, you know, some money that they've lost, you know, they might not care. Right. So, for instance, if you're a millionaire and you lose 100 pounds, well, so what? Right. right. If you're a homeless person on the street and you lose a hundred pounds, that's you know that's earth shattering. So we need so so we need to ask about you know depending on how much you own, you know what's the impact? Is it you know total destruction or not? And then the other question that we asked was you know on a scale of one to ten, what was the emotional impact of the same thing? And then we compared the two. Right. We looked at you know, how, how people perceive the financial impact of being defrauded and how people perceive the emotional impact, right? In different okay. types of, in nine different types of fraud. Um, and it turns out that across the board, in all those, you know, measured types of fraud, people perceived the emotional impact to be higher than financial. I can totally see that because the people that yeah. I meet, many of them are shattered. I mean, you know, they, yeah. I'm sure that there are sort of mental health implications for some people bounce mm-hmm. back. Of course, they do. It doesn't apply to everybody. But for some people, there's a real sense of uh, it's chipped away at their self-confidence. They almost don't trust yeah. themselves to go out into the world yeah. and navigate it successfully anymore. Yeah. So my, I mean, I understand. And, you know, it's a it's a horrible thing. So, you know, my message to them would be, I would say a few things. I would say, you know, welcome to the club would be the first thing that I would say, because, you know, even though being scammed is a low probability event at every given year, you know, my, I, I postulate that we all get scammed sooner or later. <laughs> you know, at one point in time, we will. You know, we're exposed to this. I mean, certainly I've been scammed and I do this for a living. Um, well, that's reassuring. Know, that, I mean, I, it's just to me, it's kind of like, well, you see, you're, I mean, look at this. It sounds callous, but you know, it's, it, you're not special. 
<laughs> it happens to all of us. It's it's fine. You know, you're not particularly, you're not more dumb, you're not more stupid, you're not a bigger sucker than anybody else. You see? Because we're inundated by this. And sometimes you make a wrong decision. You know, don't worry about it. We'll, you know, we'll find ways to um, to solve your particular situation, which could be earth-shattering, but the sole act of being defrauded, you're not special in that. Yeah, it doesn't make you a bad person. No, it happens to all of us. That's Dr. David Moditz of Cambridge University, and he's going to be joining us over the course of the next few podcasts. And I can guarantee that pretty much everything you assumed you knew about who gets scammed and why is so far off base. It's going to be a lot of fascinating chat coming up from Dr. Moditz in the coming weeks. Okay, it's tangent time. This is where one of the case studies that we filmed on the TV show piques our interest in an additional and slightly offbeat kind of way here at the podcast. On the show, we followed the case of three young men who were scammed out of ticket money for an event that never took place. They didn't get a refund or any explanation. But we'd like one, please. We would like to know more about this rather apocalyptic sounding event perhaps you would too. So who better to share their own horrifying experience in this psychotic social pastime than adventure athlete and journalist Tobias Muse? So come on then, Tobias. What in the name of Norman Bates is a zombie run? (laughs) Zombie racing. I mean, this is a sport in its own right. It basically began in in the States, uh, as everything seems to do these days. Zombie racing is, in short, uh, uh, generally speaking, a five-kilometer-ish uh, race uh, where you are being chased by zombies. That, that is it. Uh, and the objective uh, is to be alive at the end of the five-kilometer race. <laughs> so if you kind of picture picture a park run, it's the best way to do it, it's the only way I can imagine it. Picture a park run. You're gathered on a Saturday morning, let's say, in uh, Edinburgh, and you are surrounded by, let's say, 500 people around you. And uh, there's a bloke on a megaphone saying uh, that Edinburgh has been uh, overrun by zombies. And you have to make your way uh, through the parkrun course to the finish, uh, where you'll be collected and taken to a uh, kind of refuge, uh, of uh, a zombie-free refuge. So you're given three lifelines, which are attached to your waist, and there are lots of zombies around. They will be trying to get those off you. And just to make life a bit more difficult, uh, there are lots of obstacles. So it's kind of like an obstacle course race with zombies chucked in. Sound a bit bonkers, although quite a good laugh, I'm sure. So did our intrepid hero and former captain of the British Army start to get a little competitive? With the undead? I've done two. And the first time I did it, uh, I, I, I'm quite quick on the whole. And, you know, like, and I, you know, generally speaking in these kind of events, you know, would expect to, 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 to come in the top, you know, two or three. And, uh, and so I darted off at the beginning thinking, right, you know, I'm quick and all this lot. I'm going to go for it. And I'm good at obstacle course racing. So, yeah, I pegged it. And, uh, and essentially I found myself on my own in an open field with on a really like difficult field to run in, like boggy, tricky running. Uh, and, um, and yeah, and I had about 30 zombies in front of me and <laughs> who were all looking at me very hungrily. And, and they were meant to be like, you know, I thought zombies were like 
walking slowly with like a limp and you know looking yeah, a bit with their, like, hand, just, with their arms sticking out no way these these were like this is like facing 30 Usain Bolts who decided you know <laughs> the first team in the rugby team you know it was basically the rugby squad in front of me and they weren't playing zombies they were playing like I'm gonna get this guy he thinks he's fast huh <laughs> wait wait so I lost all three lifelines in the space of about uh, you know, 15 seconds what about the second one was it was that was that did that differ in any way or was that very similar I was clever on the second one I uh, I, I, uh, I had my decoys so I I, uh, I I set off at, at, at a good pace but I let a couple of guys go in front of me and I used them as bait and uh, I, I uh, yeah it's, it's nasty isn't it racing tactics you've got to do these things <laughs> uh, so yeah so uh, knowing what I knew I, I let them dart off and but just because you know I just kept just behind them and uh, so obviously when the zombies were uh, busy attacking them doing British bulldog, bulldog uh, you know, sessions, I then sneakily snuck around and, uh, and evaded capture. And, and so the first time I, I was infected uh, at the finish and the second time I managed to survive uh, and it worked. But uh, yeah, really, 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 really good fun. And uh, yeah, just, yeah, loved it, loved it. Tobias, before we let you go, um, tell us tell us what where we can see you, read about you. What are you up to next? What's coming up for you? Well, I've just released a, a new book called uh, Go. It's an inspirational guide to getting outside and challenging yourself. And essentially, I kind of I spent the last couple of years really uh, creating my own races, creating my own challenges. I've been racing buses and racing funiculars and racing boats and chasing the sunset, you know, uh, from doing you know, a race from the sunrise to sunset. I've done overnight races where I've given myself just enough time. I say races, challenges, you know, I want to get from A to B and right. I give myself 14 hours to get there. And essentially I've got to be back, you know, I, I've left work at five o'clock. I've got to be back at my desk by nine o'clock. That's my parameter. And in that time, I've got to get somewhere and get back again. I, you know, I ran from London to Brighton. I caught the first train back from Brighton back home, uh, you know, to sit back at my desk, you know, with a coffee about nine o'clock. And then that was my, I had barely any sleep, but that was, that was my challenge. Brilliant. Uh, and the point is, if anyone wants to join me, they can, because I, I love nothing more than doing it with other people. So if, if anyone's got a Barbie plan, they want to, uh, you know, they want to do, and uh, they want to do some peak to peak challenge, they want to create a swim run in the Lake District, they want to, you know, race a particular bus, wherever it is, uh, <laughs> let me know, and I will come and join them. Tobias Muse there. Exactly the kind of bloke you want chasing a taxi down the high street on a Friday night when you realise you've left your mobile phone inside. Jackie Brambles here with the Stopping Scotland Scammers podcast, produced by Broadstance Media and brought to you by the Royal Bank of Scotland. Check out their online security centre for some fantastic advice and information on staying safe online. And you can find that at personal.rbs.co.uk. According to a recent study on dementia, British researchers have found out that the likelihood of the elderly developing diseases like Alzheimer's is higher in those who have difficult family relationships. And although it's not always the case, the risks are lower in those whose families had a reliable, approachable and understanding relationship. Betty, featured on the TV programme Stopping Scotland Scammers, was one of the lucky ones. She was the beloved aunt of Donald, and his sister, Lynn. She loved people. That was how I would describe her. She loved people. And she trusted everybody. And yeah. everybody was her friend. And despite all the difficulties she had with cerebral palsy. And then cancer. And then cancer and later in life. You asked her how she was and she said, I'm fine. How are you? 
When Betty's failing health necessitated the support of carers, her family were comforted that the carer assigned to their aunt appeared to dote on her. She went above and beyond the call of duty, often taking Betty out and about on her own time, and Betty came to love her. But what the carer loved was the £40,000 life savings that she was gradually siphoning out of Betty's bank account over a period of years. In fact, until her dying day. But I just couldn't believe that anybody could do that to my aunt. And my aunt at this time was lying, dying in her deathbed. And I'm looking at a bank statement, thinking, how could anybody have done this to her? It's every family's nightmare. But what can you do? How do you make sure that the carer looking after your family member has good intentions? Heather Smith of Age Scotland. I think the first key to it is to get a proper assessment from the local authority of what your care needs are, because it may be that the local authority will be able to help you to find a carer who is either employed by the local authority and has been through the very stringent checks that they have, or who is employed by a reputable care provider. So the care provider would be registered with the care inspectorate. You can find out from the care inspector if there if the complaints there. And many staff will be members of the uh, Scottish Social Services Council. So they'll have professional registrations too. So if it's a, a council service or a proper professional care provider, they should have made all those checks. You should have had peace of mind. And of course, there will be someone with a robust complaints procedure if you think that something's not going right. I suspect there might be a more of a risk if people look for informal carers, someone they know and trust, who seems nice, who seems friendly, who may, which is quite a frightening thought, have actually provided care for somebody else locally and seem to have done a very good job. It may be that this is, there is somebody around who is actually um, making a practice of preying on vulnerable people, but is maintaining a reputation for being caring. So it's a bit like, in some ways, anybody else that you would let into your home don't trust someone just because they seem nice. Check out their credentials. If it was somebody, say, coming to fix the roof, you'd want to check them out with your local care and repair or your local council trusted trader scheme. There will always be criminals who will abuse any system. Fortunately, they're the minority. But I think going through official channels, particularly for care, is the right way to go. Taking on that responsibility of negotiating local bureaucracy on behalf of our elderly relative, well, it's one of those life hurdles that can seem confusing and, frankly, overwhelming. So what about people who just don't have a clue where to start? If they're not ready to go to the council because they haven't been involved with the system for so long, ring one of our helpline advisors and say, this is the situation. Who do I need to speak to? What's relevant? A helpline advisor will talk them through their options because care is our biggest inquiry that we have. Um, and we also produce a whole range of information on paper and on our website about how the care system works, how the care home system funding system works, how to choose a care home, how care at home should work, how getting your home adapted so you don't need to go into a care home yet all works. It's part of our purpose as Age Scotland to produce that information. Well, that's, I mean, that's, that's, that's just a lifeline, isn't it, to people that there's, there's somewhere to turn to ask those questions before you do have to sort of dive in anywhere officially? I think it's easier to know where you stand before you go to an official body. And it might be the local authority you need to speak to. It might be that you also want to check out somebody's entitlement to disability-related benefits because many people whose 
um, are living with a disability who are older people will have an entitlement to attendance allowance. But it may be that nobody's told them because people may know about the care system, which is the local authority, and attendance allowance, which is the DWP, but not ex not actually know that those systems won't communicate with each other necessarily. So it might be that somebody might not want a care package, but would accept money from the Department for Work and Pensions, which they could then use to pay for some of the help that they need, or for um, sort of meals that they could cook more easily if it's, if it's maybe something like preparing vegetables that they can't do anymore. There might also be a help available locally. It might be that if someone is not managing to cook anymore, there might be a lunch club around the corner that could help. Age Scotland's got around a thousand many member groups, many of which are organisations which provide services for lo local people, which could be lunch clubs and befriending and things like that. So it might be that some there is another solution to what somebody isn't coping with. I'm sure that there'll be many people um who will be ringing that hotline, what can we do or what is there in the local area? It's a fantastic resource. That's what we're for because many of the issues that come with later life, you're not prepared for um, or you haven't thought about. So if we can actually make a difference to people's lives, that, you know, that's, what, that's what our helpline is for. And that's what our network of member groups is for. Our community development staff support them so that if they're, develop, if they're providing a lunch club, then it will be as good as a lunch club can be. If they want to develop their services, we'll look at what we can do. And when we can, we'll get um, funding for other projects to do a little bit of what we do better for a specific group. We're, um, at the moment, we have an early stage dementia looking at what we can do to support people with all, uh, early stage dementia to have the best lives that they can. And again, a lot of that is around taking control, getting power of attorney, making decisions for your future. And we're soon going to be doing some work with older veterans who have rights um, that they might not know about. The website address is www.agescotland.org.uk. And we do Scottish information for older people in Scotland, because when you actually look at it, most of the issues that affect older people's lives are already devolved to Scotland. If you look at care and health and housing and the help with heating schemes and the whole court system, the, the information that you might read that's UK wide may well not apply in Scotland. Scotland has its own systems of social welfare around those issues. And a helpline number is 0800 12 44 2. And we've got a team of advisors based in Edinburgh who answer these questions day in, day out from older people themselves and from family members who are going, so what do I do? I, I, I don't know how the care system works, but then why would I? Where do I begin? It's, it's, it's part of, of what we exist to do as a charity. So lots of great advice, information and support at Age Scotland. But as well as the practicalities of coordinating care for our ageing loved ones, there can be an emotional toll that doesn't get as much airtime. Jackie High has written a brilliant book on exactly this topic called Now Where Did I Put My Glasses? It's a very emotional book and I wondered how she'd done all her research. I spoke to over 300 different individuals for the book and I found that um, two things happened. People got terribly, terribly terribly emotional when you gave them the chance to actually talk about it to you. Um, I spoke to all the generations. I spoke to grandchildren, um, parents and grandparents, you know, the, the, the older generation as well about how they felt. So that there was um, everybody's side got put, if you like. And 
families who were trying to deal with elderly parents and they were worried and they didn't want to see their parents disappearing into the abyss of old age either. Um, they got very, very, very emotional and, and they just didn't know how they were going to cope and people just used to burst into tears about it because they felt nobody would understand, nobody would understand how they were feeling. But actually, if you think about it, everybody is in the same boat. It comes to everybody in the end. And as long as you're doing your best and you love your parents, you can't do any more. And you have to forgive yourself. But the frightening thing is the people who did fall out with their parents sometimes did end up not talking to them. And then they died. And they never forgave themselves for that ever. So that is probably the worst case scenario. Don't lose touch. Even if it can't be, if it's only on the phone or... Don't let them get to you. They'll push you because it's just like um, teenage children. They'll push you till you lose it, till you lose your temper. Um, but it's them pushing back and trying to be independent just in the same way that, that teenagers are. And you have, to be, you have to be the soul of patience and that's very hard. And you also have to be sort of the buoyancy age, don't you, emotionally to parents who are perhaps, you know, have increasingly failing health it's very difficult to cheer somebody up when the grim facts are there's no hope of things getting better. In fact, they're going to get worse. It's a very difficult situation to be a cheerleader in that environment. When your parents are getting frail, becoming more and more frail, they're getting more and more frightened and, and they are definitely getting more depressed. Um, you can be positive your 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 role is to be positive always and to say, um, look, you're better than you were last week. This is great. Look at this. You're looking fantastic. And and take them out shopping, to, you know, for a new a new coat or um, take them out for a, um, a cream tea or some whatever it is that floats their boat, a football match down to the pub. It doesn't matter. Um, keep the normal things going. Keep the keep the usual chatty, um, real-life fun things going. Make sure they see plenty of their grandchildren. Explain to your children that this is their grandparents. And However, it's sometimes hard for, for young people to relate to older people, but most grandchildren really love their grandparents, even though they can get embarrassed about how to talk to them because they don't really know the right way to do it encourage them to be together and i would say this from as soon as they're born actually i mean speaking as a grandparent spend as much time with your with your um grandchildren as you can that's what they want to do as parents make sure that your children spend time with their grandparents it cheers the grandparents up a great deal especially if they're feeling a bit frail a little bit of tlc a bunch of dafts whatever it is turning up and giving grandma a kiss and 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 uh, saying, can I make you a cup of tea, Gran, and this kind of thing. It's all normal, everyday stuff, and that's the stuff that lifts their spirits. There is nothing too small or too ordinary. I mean, if it's your sister and she was feeling a bit down because she wasn't well, you wouldn't hesitate to just do the normal things. You wouldn't try to think out elaborate plans to, to take her out of herself. You'd just pop around and have a cup of tea with her, wouldn't you? Yes, and of course. That, and it's exactly the same, the same thing. You just pop around and have a cup of tea, Keep them cheerful and keep them positive. Now, where did I put my glasses? Written by Jackie High. Join us next time as we ask if being a nice, decent human being makes you way more likely to get scammed. 
And who said camper vans were for boring wet weekends, bickering with the one you love in a metal box for days on end? Certainly not me. On episode two of the podcast, we'll be hearing about life on the road with a couple of adventurers who still aren't back from a nine-year jaunt around the world in their trusty camper van called Daphne. I believe they may be in Portugal when we speak to them. Thanks to all our courageous contributors and generous guests, and to you for listening to episode one of the Stopping Scotland Scammers podcast, produced by me, Jackie Brambles, for Broadstance Media, and brought to you by the Royal Bank of Scotland. <laughs>